Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. This is the fourth week in our series called What Happens When We Worship. And we're looking from the Scriptures at what God does in us and among us and for us when we come together as God's people on the Lord's Day and worship Him. We've already looked at what God does when when we gather. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. When we gather together as a people, God meets with us in a unique and supernatural way. Now, can you commune with God at the lake? Can you commune with God in the wilderness or on your back porch or in other places? Of course you can. God is everywhere. And yet, the testimony of Scripture is that God meets with His people in a very unique way when they come together for worship. We saw that a few weeks ago. And then last week we looked at what God does when we give. It's pretty amazing when you consider the grace of God uh, in that way. And this morning we're going to look at what God does when we preach. And I guess maybe said a better way, what God does when His Word is rightly preached. In the spring of 1994, and I only remember that timestamp because I was just about six weeks from getting married, uh, my car had broken down. I was sitting in a Nissan dealership waiting for word on what was wrong with my vehicle. And I had taken it in. They said, hey, give us an opportunity to do some diagnostics, and then we'll let you know what's wrong. And so I'm sitting there waiting to hear back, you know, somewhat concerned about what the, the expense may be. And as I'm sitting in the chair, this man came in with a very slick dark gray, double-breasted suit. They were, they were kind of in style then, and I, when I understand, they're trying to make a, a comeback. Uh, but this guy came in, and he sort of sauntered up to me, and he put his, his fist out and, uh, and had something for me. I didn't know what it was, but uh, he let go of what was in his fist into my hand. It was a small piece of paper, and he said, open it up and read it. This is a guy I'd never seen before. I said, uh, okay. Um, so I opened it up, and, and, and I started to read aloud. There were a dozen words on there. Um, kitchen, eyes, love. I don't remember all the words, but this man said to me that this is what God said to me. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to make sense of it, but God gave me these 12 words. Uh, and so I started to think, I, 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 didn't, I thought, is that really how God communicates to us in random, a random assortment of words? Um, I didn't know if this is from the Lord or not. I didn't know he was violating my personal space. Um, but I said, all right, well, so I started thinking, now, how is this, is this really how God works? It doesn't really seem consistent with the way God reveals himself in Scripture, which is a God of order. And so I thought, how could these random words really be from the Lord? Is that how God communicates? I don't think so. Now, make no mistake, God still speaks Perhaps not so much in an audible voice or in a random, a random string of words scribbled on a piece of folded up paper, but he still speaks through his son, the writer of Hebrews tells us. He still speaks, the Psalms tell us very clearly, through his divine dealings with us in providence, and he also speaks through his word as we read it and, and as God's word is rightly preached. So I've been giving you the main point of these sermons the past few weeks, um, and then kind of showing you how I got to that point from the Scripture. So let me do the same thing uh, this week as it relates to what God does when we preach. Here's the big idea, the main point of this. When God's Word is rightly preached, God Himself speaks through His ambassador a word of comfort and hope. So when, God, when God's Word is preached, God speaks. 
This is why the preached word, preaching has been so central to the church throughout uh, the ages. Throughout every age of redemptive history, the preached word has been a focal point of the gathering of God's people. The great English scholar John Stott writes, Preaching is indispensable to Christianity, for Christianity is, in its very essence, a religion of the Word of God. No attempt to understand Christianity can succeed which overlooks or denies the truth that the living God has taken the initiative to reveal Himself savingly to fallen humanity, or that His self-revelation has been given by the most straightforward means of communication known to us, namely by a word and words or that he calls upon those who have heard his word to speak to others. So every religion, if you want to think of a religion in your mind, you know, there, there are hundreds, every religion pretty much has a spokesperson or spokesman. Muslims have uh, their imams and, and mullahs, they're called. Uh, the Jewish religion has its rabbis. Hindus have their pujaris or priests. Buddhists have their shifus or monks. And with all of these other religions, their spokespersons, their, the spokespeople, what they do is they explain the ancient traditions and they help to show their followers how to be right with, how to be reconciled to God, the gods or the universe or whatever it is in these other religions. They, they, they speak and they show how to be right with God in their estimation, but none dares to speak for God. They would never do that. But Christian preachers claim to not only be God's ambassadors, but also to speak for God. Now, how could they make such a bold claim? I want to show you this morning from the text as we look at what, God's, what God does when His Word is preached. And I want to look at it from three different angles. The purpose of Christian preaching, the power of Christian preaching, and the content of Christian preaching. So, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to cover... Uh, verses 7 through 11. We're really going to camp out at verse uh, 11, but let me read this section here. Here is the word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, we normally preach through books of the Bible, kind of one section at a time. It's called expository preaching. But every once in a while... We will kind of divert from our time in a book, and we spent, we spent a long time in First in John, and then we spent over a year in John's Gospel, and beginning of the year, we're going to start a series in Job. But every once in a while, as I mentioned, we will kind of divert, and we'll look at a series. Now, we're still, we're still working through books of the Bible, or sections of the Bible, um, but we may jump from one passage to another, one book to another. And so, since we haven't been in First Peter, let me just kind of give you a little bit of the context. This is the first letter from Peter, obviously, the kind of hot-headed and unpredictable disciple of Jesus. And he writes to a group of Christians toward the latter part of the first century who are, who are suffering, who are being persecuted. Um, they're going through tremendous trials, and those trials will actually only intensify over time. The recipients of this letter are hurting uh, terribly in some cases, and it's because of their allegiance to Christ. And God will use Peter 
this brash, uh, unpredictable, and we might even say spectacular failure of a person to encourage and embolden these suffering Christians. And it does give us, I think, some encouragement, some hope that God, if God can use Peter and all the things that he did, then certainly God can and use us. And God, God is using you in a way that you may not uh, even realize. So one way that, that Peter encourages this church is by reminding them of God's faithfulness throughout the ages. So he keeps taking them back to the faithfulness of God. And another way is by pointing out to them the suffering of Christ. This is a regular theme in the book. Yes, you are suffering. And, and Peter acknowledges that. But I want to tell you about Christ who suffered, who suffered for you. He also calls Christians to be looking forward to Christ's coming. The suffering servant uh, is also the lamb who was slain, the, the, who's also the conquering king who will return and make right everything that's wrong with this wor- world. And Peter says in, in verse 7, look at verse 7 again. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And I mentioned to this, we have a ministry on Wednesday night called Capshaw Academy, which many of you are a part of, which is kind of a, I don't know, seminary light, if you will. We take a variety of topics. I mentioned a few weeks ago that there's a double meaning in this, in this passage when Peter says be self-controlled and, and vigilant and so on. One is, he's saying, don't, be, um, don't take in substances, don't be uh, controlled by, whether it's drugs or alcohol or you know too much drink or whatever so he's saying don't let something else control you but the but the other side of this he's he's saying be realistic as christians be realistic don't be foolishly naive don't be uh, the consummate pessimist but be realistic about the world that you live in he'll say later you shouldn't be surprised if you suffer because this will happen to those who follow jesus well, what Peter says here is that to these believers that they're living in the last days, the last stage of God's redemptive plan. The resurrection of Jesus marked the end of the beginning, so to speak, or the beginning of the end, and all things are now ready for Christ's return, which was also the case 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote this, which means that he was absolutely right in what he wrote, the point being the return of Christ could happen at any moment. And as we wait, as we persevere in the faith, Peter says, we do so by clinging to certain things, by embracing certain rhythms. Yes, absolutely. Christ is the one who will hold us. He is the one who will keep us. And as a couple of us as elders went over and prayed with the lady in our church, we anointed her head with oil and prayed with her on Friday evening. We, we tried to reassure her that it's Christ who will hold on to you. It's not your own strength. It's not your own white knuckled grip. It's not your own ability. Jesus holds on to his own. So yes, Christ holds on to his own, but he does so through means. And one of those means, verses 8 and 9, 1 Peter 4, is as we love one another and show hospitality to one another, as we are so involved in each other's lives that we are in each other's homes. And then, verse 10, Christ holds on to us and strengthens us as we serve one another with our gifts. We'll talk about that more next week. But one of those gifts that God gives the church by which Christ sustains and strengthens His own are preachers who preach, who speak, verse 11, the very oracles of God. The word oracle in the Scripture refers to a a revelation of God, uh, the divine disclosures of God. According to the Apostle Peter, those who have been gifted to speak 
which you'll identify uh, in the next chapter as the shepherds of God's flock, should do so as those who speak the very revelations of God. In other words, the ones who have been called by God to preach actually speak for God in a beautiful and mysterious way, while the preacher expounds and rightly explains the Word of God, God is the one ultimately doing the speaking. There are several, there's a whole range of Greek words in the New Testament, you know, written predominantly in Greek. There's a whole range of Greek words used to describe the activity of preaching, but there are kind of three that are the top three, and then there's a huge gap between any of the others. And the three, euan uh, is one, katangelo uh, is another, and keruso is another. And all three of these, again, which are the words translated preach in the New Testament over and over and over again, they all three denote the public authoritative proclamation of God's Word by a commissioned leader. So what Peter says in this chapter is, when those who have been called and confirmed by God speak in the household of God. They speak not their own words, but the sacred words that belong to God and come from God. The second Helvetic confession reads, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Wherefore, when this Word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very Word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. We talk a lot here about... uh, our pastoral interns, and we've had at least five of those over the last five years, and just been a huge blessing to us on staff, pastors and leaders, and uh, young men who have come through our sort of program, if you will, and that God has called to serve in vocational ministries and, you know, all over. Well, two of our interns, Jacob and Logan, who are serving at uh, churches in Pennsylvania and Florida, respectively, were both sent by their lead pastor, this is sort of, you know, random, at least humanly speaking, to participate in the Simeon Trust uh, preaching conference. So it's a way to, actually I think Logan's was canceled because of the hurricane, but they were sent to the, this was on the schedule, to send them to the Simeon Trust preaching conference so they could continue to grow in their preaching ability. Well, that seminar is named after Charles Simeon, the great British preacher of the 18th century. Now, Simeon wasn't particularly talented uh, as a kid. He's not one of those, he was not one of those kids who stood out in his class as unusually gifted. You know how in schools they give out the awards for most likely to succeed, uh, most athletic, uh, most likely to become president, or biggest smile, class clown. Maybe some of you have received some of those. Well, Simeon was recognized in his school as the ugliest kid in school. That's what he was called. Um, You can imagine uh, how his parents received that when he came home with that award, right? Uh, I'm sure they both deflected and said, well, he does really look more like you than he does me. Uh, but he, got, he, was, he was awarded the ugliest kid in school and did not have uh, awards that we don't give out anymore, thankfully. Uh, did not have the greatest voice. He was not, as I mentioned, uh, the, the easiest person to look at. Um, and he had a really rough go of pastoral ministry at first. In fact, more than just at first. His first 20 years of pastoral ministry, his home church there in Cambridge, the Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, they d- decided to make it as miserable as possible for him. They were constantly ribbing him and tormenting him. He, he, he preached a time, Charles Simmons preached a time where, where people would throw bricks through the window at him. And yet, incredibly, this is why I love this story so much. He stayed at that church and preached for 54 years. 54 years. 
and he really took an interest in young, budding preachers. He would regularly have young men in his home that he was teaching to preach, and that's why this preaching workshop is called the Charles Simeon uh, Preaching Trust Preaching Workshop. Well, at the ordination of one of these young men that he'd invested in, the guy's name was John Venn, one of Simeon's students. In 1782, Simeon wrote, Ministers are ambassadors of God who speak in Christ's stead. If they preach what is founded in the Scriptures, their word, as far as it is agreeable to the mind of God, is to be considered as God's. We ought, therefore, to receive the preacher's word as the word of God himself. Now, I realize, of course, this, this all sounds very self-serving, right? Um, but I think well, the reason I'm, I'm even talking about this is because I want us to realize and understand what happens when we gather together, and more specifically, what God does when we gather, when we sing, when we pray, when we give, and when God's Word is preached. The preacher, preachers are called to speak for God. Now, to be sure, to be sure, preachers are fallible, sinful, broken people. Sinful men with all kinds of issues, and preachers get it wrong. I can't tell you the number of Sunday afternoons that I've gone home, I've tried to take a nap, but I couldn't sleep because all that I had in my head was, why did I say that that way? Why did I say that? So the issue is not that preachers are great or that preachers are perfect. Nothing can be further from the truth. But the issue is that God, for a reason known only to Him, has determined to speak through the proclamation of His Word. When preachers rightly explain the text of Scripture, the congregation gets to hear the voice of God. And again, the authority does not come from the preacher. Their words are not to be heeded because they have big personalities or certain degrees or large platforms or social media influences or fancy sneakers. You know, there's a thing now, preachers with sneakers, that some of these preachers wear like $800 sneakers. Um, but they're not to be regarded for any of those reasons. Preachers have no power in themselves. They represent, they speak the oracles of God when they expound the Holy Scriptures. So, what then is the purpose of Christian preaching? Well, remember the context of 1 Peter that I just talked about. These believers are weak, they're struggling, they're being persecuted, they are suffering. Some are just barely hanging on. And Peter says that their strength and encouragement will come in part by the preached Word of God. You know, in every sermon, the preacher has a goal in mind. At least he should. There are broader goals. There are broader goals, but there also there should be a narrow, specific goal for a specific sermon. The broader goal doesn't change. Here's the broader goal, the purpose of preaching. The purpose of Christian preaching is to glorify God by helping people believe and rest in the finished work of Christ, which leads to worship and maturation. Paul talks about this in his letters. It's through the exposition, the preaching of the Word, that the believers are equipped and they build, they're built up into Christ. So the purpose is to glorify God by helping people believe and rest in the finished work of Christ, which leads to worship and maturation. Christian preaching leads to conversions among the lost and worship and obedience among God's people. Preaching builds up the church as a whole in greater unity, in greater joy, in a greater witness to the world. And it announces to a hurting world that there is a Savior, a loving God who's come to redeem 
this sin-cursed world. Now, those are the broader goals, but what about the narrow goal? Well, each message should have, as I mentioned, a specific goal. So there are questions that every preacher asks, hopefully, ideally, before he would come and, and expound the text. Questions like, what, is, what does the text have to say? I mean, that's, of course, very important. What does the text say? How does this passage fit within the big story of redemption? So how does this individual pericope or, or unit fit within the big story? What does God intend to communicate here to this audience here? What am I praying that the Holy Spirit would do? What is my prayed for, desired outcome of this message? And my goal this morning for this message, as I've kind of alluded to, is to show you how God graciously speaks to us when His Word is preached in such a way that it might stir you toward an even greater desire to be with God's people on the Lord Day so that you could be fed from God, from His Word. Again, the goal of Christian preaching is to glorify God, helping people to rest, to believe and rest in the finished work of Christ, a belief then which leads to worship and maturation. Well, what about where is the power in preaching? Well, that answer to that question comes from a couple chapters earlier in the same letter. Peter tells these suffering Christians that there was a point in time when the prophets of old preached and they didn't know the details about the coming Messiah. So they were pointing people forward to the the Redeemer who was to come, but they didn't know all the details. They didn't know all the information. They didn't know the specifics about this Messiah and the suffering that he would go through. And Peter says to them in 1 Peter 1.12, I mean, they wanted to know more, but they weren't granted that insight. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1, they were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Do you realize we talked about this again just for a couple minutes at the end of Capshaw Academy last week? There are some things that we, when we get to be with the Lord, are going to have to explain to the angels. Like grace, which they will, know, they will understand the way that we understand. It's a really incredible reality. Well, it's the Holy Spirit that attends to the preaching of God's Word with power. That's the way it's always been. Let me say it this way in answering that question, where is the power in preaching? The power of faithful preaching is imparted by the Holy Spirit who supernaturally attends to the proclaimed Word. When a preacher faithfully expounds the Word of God, seeking to glorify the Father by magnifying Christ, the Holy Spirit is constantly and powerfully at work, reassuring those in Christ of God's love for them. Romans 5, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that, that it is the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts, which is another way of saying that the Holy Spirit is the one who persuades us of God's love for us so that we're able to recognize it and rejoice in it and endure suffering and persecution. This is a supernatural act of the Spirit of God that He accomplishes through the preached Word. Turn of the century, Baptist pastor and preacher Charles Spurgeon writes, Preachers sent from God are not musical boxes which, being once wound up, will play through their set tunes but they are trumpets which are utterly mute 
until the living breath causes them to give forth a certain sound. And the living breath is the Holy Spirit. Concerning those who are not in Christ, it is the Holy Spirit who grants saving faith through the preached word. While the Holy Spirit strengthens the faith of the believer by taking him back to the love of God in Christ, he often, according to God's sovereign design, awakens, we just sang about in our first song, he awakens the hearts of those who are spiritually dead, bringing them to repentance and faith. No amount of persuasion, argumentation, or well-crafted turns of phrases can bring life to someone who's spiritually dead. I spent an an ample amount of time uh, first uh, exegeting the Scripture, bringing out the meaning of the text, and then expositing the Scripture, explaining the text. But it doesn't matter how much time I spend or how cleverly worded my phrases are or whatever it is that I put down, unless the Spirit of God does a work, nothing's going to happen. Because I can't say things cleverly enough, insightfully enough, brilliantly enough to bring anybody to life from the dead. I just have no ability to do that. But God, again, for a reason known to Him, He decides that He will minister through the preached Word by the Holy Spirit to bring about incredible transformation. You say, well, I'm not a preacher. Like, why am I, why should I care about this message? I'm not a preacher. I'm never going to be a preacher. How does this apply to me? Well, this is, again, part of that narrower, specific goal. Do you want to know God's love more deeply? I know you do. We all do. Do you want to have greater strength to persevere through difficult trials? Do you want to grow in your faith and witness? God intends to cause these things to happen as He speaks to us through the preached Word which He then applies to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. All right, finally, what is the content of Christian preaching? I know we have a lot of 80s children here. Um, That is, folks who grew up, they spent their early teenage years or teenage years in the 80s. Um, That's why 80s parties are a big hit and 80s music. If you're you're sitting at a restaurant with people that grew up in the 80s, and they start playing an 80s song, then those 40 or 50-somethings, they cannot help but sing those songs. They, even they don't want to. They can't help but sing those songs. In my junior high school, when it was time to change classes, we were alerted to the end of the uh, class, not by a buzzer or a bell, but they would blast uh, the local radio station. And so we would knew that when the radio came on, or this is you know mid, mid-1980s, when the radio came on, that was time for us to grab our stuff and move to the next class, and I heard, I heard 80 songs every day, uh, every Monday through Friday throughout the day, and even now, every time I hear the song Total Eclipse of the Heart, you know, by Bonnie Tyler, I am instantly transported in my mind to the echoey and stinky halls of Clara E. Weisenborn Junior High. That's where I go every time. I can't help it. Well, if you grew up in the 80s, you, you remember Madonna's famous song, Papa don't preach, right? Papa don't preach. What Madonna didn't want her dad doing was telling her what to do. So she said, don't preach at me. I don't want to hear you tell me what to do. I want to be bossed around by you via your preaching. To her, that's what preaching was. For years in various discussions, I have made the point that somewhere along the way, at some point in time, 
never really had been able to diagnose where. But at some point in time, the word preach became synonymous with telling people what to do or not to do. Bossing people around, uh, scolding them in some sort of way for some ethical violation. And again, I had no idea where this, I knew this was the case, but I just didn't know how or where until about a year ago I was reading a, an article entitled Biblical Theology and the Issue of Application in Preaching, which explained the influence of Greek antiquity on so much of our rhetoric and oration and, and preaching even. Going back even before Christ, oration, rhetoric, this was a huge deal. And the goal of ancient Greek speech was to persuade people to live a certain way. In fact, uh, in ancient Athens, about 300 years before Jesus was born, there was tremendous value placed on you know, being a skilled orator. And people would debate and discuss ideas. It's actually fascinating. I was in Athens maybe 15 years ago, and, and it's still, in the heart of the city, there's just a love for debate and discussion. It just goes on all the time. It's been going on for millennia. Well, back 300 years before Christ was born, kind of in the mid-300s, there were two very prominent, well-known orators, uh, Eschines and Demosthenes. Uh, and, and Eschines had this beautiful way with words. He was a real wordsmith and just could craft. He could just put, a, put together a sentence that would wow you. Demosthenes, on the other hand, he wasn't nearly as well-spoken. Um, his turns of phrases were not nearly so awe-inspiring. He was much more kind of a man of the people. He was much more ordinary, a man who was well-known among his fellow Athenians. If, if Eschines was Alexis, Demosthenes was kind of like a Toyota Yaris. You know, have you ever seen these? And so, they, you know, they, they were very different in their approaches. Uh, but Demosthenes was actually a man who could provoke people to action. And people came to love him. There was a saying back then that started to circulate. When Eschines speaks, they say, oh, how well he speaks. But when Demosthenes speaks, they say, let us march. The point being that in ancient Greek rhetoric, the goal was to instruct the hearer on how to live. And if you could persuade your audience to do something, that was really the pinnacle of communication. And this has for centuries infiltrated the preaching of the, of the church. Isn't this what just about every sermon has as its point, you know, getting people to do something or live a certain way or whatever it is. But Christian preaching, biblical preaching, is not first telling people what to do. It is first telling people what's been done. That's the key, and that's of critical importance. Now, of course, yeah, there, there, there are times when preachers tell people what to do because there are exhortations, imperatives, all that in the Scripture. But all of that must flow out of what's been done for us by God in Christ. And that brings me to our final consideration as it relates to the content of biblical preaching. The content of Christian preaching is the gospel of God, the announcement of God's gracious and saving work through His Son. Now, can, faithful, can a faithful sermon have instructions and exhortations? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can a responsible exposition of the text provide God-honoring ways to live? Without a doubt, it should. 
but the trajectory of every sermon must take us to Jesus and his cross work. In the, in the tradition of Jesus himself, the apostles, the church fathers, the, the, Pur, the reformers, the English Puritans, and many others who would follow, the resounding message of every Christian sermon must be the glories of Christ and him crucified. Instructions on how to behave better can be heard at any mosque, kingdom hall, Mormon church, rotary club meeting, classroom, or TED talk. However, there's no eternal hope or spiritual power in any of these messages. A faithful biblical sermon must humbly and responsibly show from the text how Jesus Christ is the all-satisfying Savior, the answer to the brokenness of fallen humanity. The answer to, to our horizontal brokenness, that is the, the conflict that we have between one another. The promised one of the Hebrew Scriptures, the substitutionary atonement for our sins, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of, of the world, who now sits in, in resurrected glory where He intercedes for His own at the heart. This is, all, this is all the heart of Christian worship. These are the oracles of God that preachers are called to speak on God's behalf, because only in that, only in the gospel, is there hope for the beaten down, the exhausted, the worn out, those who have failed. Only in the news of God's forgiveness in Christ is the, the kind of sustaining encouragement that we need. I've been asked countless times over the years, why do you believe that every sermon must include Christ and Him crucified. Why do you believe that every sermon must contain the gospel? Now, it doesn't mean we just say the same things every week, but that the, the, the story of redemption of which Christ is the hero and which really takes its, uh, finds its point in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And I've been asked, why do you believe that? Well, the answer is, besides the biblical and historical witness to this, and Jesus' own words in John 5 and Luke 24 and other places, the gospel is what we desperately need as Christians and as non-Christians. When we gather on the Lord's Day, it's the beginning of a new week. But that doesn't mean that we, we, we put behind us entirely what happened in the previous week. Over the last week, we know it was filled with sins and failures and shortcomings and strained relationships, and misguided hopes, and impure motives. We've been impatient with others, and others have been impatient with us. We have been unloving toward others, and others have been unloving toward us. We've been selfish, and impatient, and passive-aggressive, and we've let self-righteousness reign in our hearts. We've been fearful of the things we can't control. We've been lustful and angry. Others have hurt us and demeaned us, and we have hurt and demeaned others. What we need when we gather together is good news. What we need is hope from God. What we need is encouragement from the Lord Himself. What we need is not to be told if we do certain things, we will be loved and accepted, received and forgiven by God. That's actually bad news because we can never do all the things necessary. What we need is the good news that because of what Jesus has done for us, we are loved, accepted, received, and forever forgiven 
by faith alone. What we need to hear is that Jesus lived for us. He died for us. He suffered the wrath of God that we deserve on the cross. He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And what we need to hear is that when we trust in Jesus, we are united to Him by faith. And all the benefits of Christ's obedience are ours by faith. So as I told this sweet lady sitting in her home on her couch as another elder and I prayed for her, I said, no, when God sees you, He doesn't look at you in terms of what happened to you the last five minutes or the last hour. He doesn't see you in terms of your failures and your shortcomings. He sees you as a beautiful, perfect daughter of His own. Not because you've lived perfectly, but because because Christ loved perfectly in your stead and because you've trusted in Jesus. This is how God regards you. What we need to hear when we gather together on the Lord's Day is about the forgiveness of God in Christ and that this same God who sent Jesus is at this very moment restoring this world, redeeming it from the slavery to sin through the person and work of His Son. That's the story of the Bible. That's the overarching story, the overarching message that every individual passage points to and what we accentuate week in and week out. So what happens when we worship? Well, when we gather together, as we've done this morning, God meets with us in a unique and supernatural way. And it's a way that cannot be replicated in any other experience. And when we give, as many of us will do this morning and throughout the week, God actually blesses that obedience and encourages and helps and assists believers and others all around the world. And when His Word is preached, God Himself speaks a word to us through His ambassador, a word of comfort and hope. May He give us the grace to receive it this morning. Let's pray.